Good morning, church. It's good to see you this crisp, sunny Sunday morning. Scraped some frost off my windshield this morning, begrudgingly. Winter's coming. A couple of announcements as we begin. Uh, Shoeboxes are due today on the off chance that someone forgot. Okay, by Wednesday, if you don't have them today. That's the deadline. That's it. Uh, it was wonderful to have Sunday school again this morning. Uh, everyone's invited to come to Sunday school 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and it's wonderful to hear all the little feet pitter-pattering upstairs in our new edition. So, uh, and that's, that's the next thing. I, I'm just so thankful for all the effort that's gone into the, the edition out back. More... Uh, 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 even more sort of finishing touches have gone in this week, so take a look uh, if you haven't. And uh, it's real encouraging to see that all coming together. A real reason uh, both to, uh, to praise God, to thank Him for His, his kindness towards us, and to, uh, um, to find a deacon or a trustee and say thank you for all their work. So take note. Uh, I was going to have... Uh, Dean come up into the pulpit and uh, and open us up in prayer and a scripture reading and he'd even agreed to do it um, but um, he's not able to be here this morning um, his father-in-law Beth's dad has had a really rough week last week uh, this past week he was in the hospital uh, for a bit with some heart issues he's back home now but I guess he's had a really rough last 24 hours. So that's why Dean and Beth aren't with us this morning. So please keep them uh, in your prayers. Um, so I'll be opening us up with uh, prayer and a scripture reading. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful to gather together on this Sunday, this resurrection day and to celebrate and to proclaim that Christ is risen, that he is the king. And it's our joy to be able to gather together to sing songs of praise to you and uh, to hear your word. We ask that you'd be at work among us this morning. We know that unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, uh, the watchmen stay awake in vain. We know, Father, that uh, if anything good is going to happen this morning in our hearts and in our little town, it's going to be by your grace and by the powerful working of your spirit. So we ask, Father, that you'd show up this morning, be at work among us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For our scripture reading, I'm going to read from Psalm 123. Psalm 123. This is one of the songs of ascents which the, the uh, people of Israel would, would sing as they were going up the hill to Jerusalem uh, for their yearly worship. So this is one of the songs that they would sing along the way. You can have that image in your mind. Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes 
look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. This is God's word. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 143, This Is My Father's World. 143, let's stand together. shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Amen. So stay standing uh, and go on over to hymn number 12. Number 12, praise him, praise him. Blessed Redeemer, sing, O earth, his wonderful love proclaim. Hail him, hail him, highest archangels in glory, strength and honor give to his holy name. Like a shepherd, Jesus will guard his children. In his arms he carries them all day long. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. For our sins he suffered and bled and died. He our rock, our hope. 
eternal salvation. Hail him, hail him, Jesus the crucified. Sound his praises, Jesus who bore our sorrows. Love unbounded, wonderful, deep, and strong. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Heavenly portals loud with hosannas ring. Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown him, crown him prophet and priest and king. Christ is coming over the world victorious. Power and glory unto the Lord belong. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Amen. Good singing have a seat. I'll ask the ushers to come forward at this time uh, to take our morning offering. A reminder again, um, this is for our church family. If you're a visitor here, please don't feel the pressure to give. Brian, would you pray over the morning offering? Lord, we thank you for your ability that you've given us to give somewhat in your work. Mm. We pray that it will be used to do your will and spread your name around the whole world. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can stay standing. And we're going to sing, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. You should have a song sheet there in your pew where it was handed to you. If you don't, give a scream or a shout.
be seated. We're going to spend some time now together in prayer. I notice some of you discovered the prayer cards. A reminder again, those are in your pews. Uh, any prayer requests that, uh, that didn't make it in on a prayer card? Allison's sister, Andrea. Yeah, Tanya. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Tanya's ne nephews, you said? Okay. Awesome. Okay. Tanya's nephews, Jacob and KJ, are home. That should be able to get them here next week. All right. I saw some more hands. Yeah, Shirley Freeman's really struggling. She's not here this morning, so be praying for her. Awesome. Diane's daughters staying in Maine this winter. Awesome. Mm. That's a praise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, be praying for our president, for our, our country. Other requests? Um, my 16-year-old brother. Mm -hmm. Millie's sister-in-law, Debbie. Okay. Amanda Thornton had surgery this week. Pray for her. Your friend Steve? Oh, our friend Steve, yes, Steve Wadsworth. Continue to pray for Steve. How's Herm doing, Donna? Not good. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes. So Sharon Lester Turner, of course, they're not with us this morning, but uh, Lester's waiting. Well, he's got, a, he's got a date for surgery, day before Thanksgiving. So I don't think they'll be with us until after that whole recovery process. Um, so be praying for Lester and for Sharon as she supports him. And for Wayne Diefenbacher, he's actually in the hospital. He's back in the hospital, so they went, in, they went back yesterday. Um, so it's not his eye this time. Um, he's, um, I wrote it on, they're not exactly sure what's wrong. God knows. <laughs> um, they've got low blood pressure. His kidney function isn't, isn't working. He's... Um, atrial fibr fibrillation, so they're worried about his heart. So we're praying for Wayne. 
Um, and, uh, course, Beth's, Beth's father as well, for his heart. Any other prayer requests? Tanya? Okay, Joy's daughter, Sarah. Yeah, yeah, Sarah Calvert. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we lift up the eyes of our hearts to you this morning because you're enthroned in the heavens. We look to you because you're the one God and maker of all things. We look to you because you're mighty in power, because you work all things in accordance to your wonderful plan. We look to you amidst chaos because you reign in heaven and because we can trust in you. We look to you because you're merciful and because you're just to all of humankind, and because you're so faithfully gracious to us even when we're unfaithful. As we approach you this morning, we're, we're aware of our own sinfulness. You've, you've given us your perfect law that we should love and serve you with every beat of our heart. We should love our neighbor as ourself, self-sacrificially, without a, even a speck of pride or resentment. We confess, Father, that we've fallen short of that standard. We haven't loved you perfectly. We haven't loved our neighbor selflessly. We confess now, silently, the sins which your Holy Spirit is even now convicting us of. We want to bring it all into the light as we prepare our hearts to hear your word. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness we found in Jesus' name. We thank you for the confidence that each of us has, all who have believed in the name of Jesus, that the forgiveness of sins and the justification that you promise was finished when Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to bear our sin, our iniquity. We rest in that promise even now. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. We, we thank you for the steady rhythms of creation, of the sun and of the rain, of the springtime and of the harvest. And on these rhythms remind us of your steadfast love and care for all of creation. We recognize that every good gift is from above, from you, Father, the Father of lights. And we so thankful that with you there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are unchangeably good to us and to all of your creation. We thank you. We thank you for the simple gifts of friends and of family, of food and of warmth, the place to call our home on this good earth. In this Thanksgiving season, we ask, Father, that you'd make our hearts glad with all your good gifts. We come with a number of concerns this morning. Uh, Lord, we think of all those uh, in our church family and in our community who are struggling with uh, medical issues. We think of Beth's father, um, who's dealing with heart failure. We pray your blessing upon him. Lord, we, we know you could 
make him better if that's your will. We ask that you do that. We ask that uh, whatever your will is for his life, that you'd have your hand of blessing on Beth, on her mom, on Dean as he supports her. And um, we just pray your blessing on that family this weekend and the weeks to come, weeks and months. We, uh, we pray that you give him your peace. We think of Wayne who's in the hospital and not even sure exactly what's going on. We pray uh, a hand, your hand, on his doctors and on his body. That, uh, you'd give them insight as to what's going on. We pray for Sue as she scrambles to hold everything together and is not even allowed in the hospital at certain points. And so we, we pray, Lord, uh, for her, that you'd, um, you'd comfort her and you give her your peace. We praise you, we thank you, Lord, that uh, Tanya's nephews are in town, Jacob and KJ, and that they're able to see each other and their family for the first time in a long while. We uh, pray your blessing over that time uh, in this coming up on the holiday season. We just pray that uh, uh, there'd be a wonderful f fellowship of family there, and we pray that uh, they'd be able to join us next week, that they'd be uh, open to, uh, to Tanya's convincing we think of Shirley Freeman this morning. We love her. We really miss her. We pray that you'd, um, pray that your hand would be on her life. Pray that uh, uh, she'd be able to see a doctor and find some resolution to all of the physical difficulties that she's undergoing. Father, we're, we're so thankful for her. She's such an example to us of faithful endurance under trial and of faithful, loving service to her family and to her church. And we're we're so blessed to have her a part of our family. We pray that uh, uh, you'd, you'd bless her, Lord, with um, some recovery from the physical ailments that she's experiencing. We think of Herm, too. Um, we thank you for his faithful service to this church. We, uh, we pray uh, your hand of blessing on uh, him this week as, as he and Donna and the doctors are struggling between and kind of a catch-22 between treatment plans. And uh, we pray that they'd find some resolution there, uh, that Herm would be able to stop seesawing between um, two unpleasant and uncomfortable extremes. And um, just pray that you give them guidance and, and through all of it, endurance, spiritual um, tenacity. We thank you. We we praise you, Lord, that Diane's daughter is going to be able to stay in Maine this winter. And uh, uh, through, through events outside of their control and maybe against their will, but Diane's pleased. And so we're, we're thankful for her. We pray that uh, you'd bless this winter, that that'd be a time where there'd be able to be intimacy in that family. We pray for um, Millie's sister-in-law, Debbie. pray that your hand would be on her life. We pray for Amanda uh, as she's uh, recovering from surgery. We pray that uh, you'd bring her back to full health, Lord. And uh, we just pray your, your hand of blessing on her and her family, especially on her kids. We think also of Sarah, uh, Joy's daughter, and of Andrea Littlefield, um, who we've been praying for many months. Pray that they'd continue to, to make forward, uh, forward progress in their 
their struggles with physical ailments and that, uh, Lord, whatever happens to their bodies, that they would have their souls secure in the name of Jesus. Father, we, we lift up uh, Punson and Sinclair who had an operation for a brain aneurysm. Pray that you bring him to complete healing. Father, we do think of our nation. Um, so much going on on the national and the international scene. This is 2020 and we're overwhelmed by it. Uh, we commend it all into your hands. We pray for our government, for our president, um, for all those uh, in positions of leadership and authority. Pray that you give them wisdom on how to lead and to govern in, in such a way that um, we're able to continue to live in a country that's free. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather freely in your name. It's a privilege that so many across the world don't have. We pray uh, that you continue, Lord, to, um, to see fit in your glorious will to, uh, to give us that freedom in this nation. And uh, we pray that whatever happens on the national scene, Lord, whether you bring us revival or whether you bring our nation under judgment, that you would sustain us as your people that we would remain salt and light, faithful witnesses in a world gone crazy. We pray, especially for Maine, with all these, this coronavirus stuff going on, Father. Uh, we, we pray uh, that uh, restrictions for churches especially wouldn't increase. Um, and uh, pray that you give uh, church leadership wisdom and guidance in how to, uh, how to lead well under restriction, uh, restrictive guidance from the governor. We pray for this church. We thank you, Lord, for this people. It's our joy to be able to get together every Sunday. Uh, those of us, Lord, I, I just know from my experience, when I miss a Sunday, I really miss it. I miss these people. Um, we're thankful for the, the various gifts that you've given us. Um, what a diverse church body, um, but in so many ways equipped to serve each other well. And we, we just ask your blessing on this people. It's been a, such a hard year in many ways um, for this church body. Um, give us rest and peace this holiday season as we move towards Advent and consider the coming of your son, Jesus. Um, we want to learn to be able to, to rest in our waiting, in our groaning, as we long for the world to be made new and for heaven and earth to be one, as we just sung. Um, help us to rest in your promises and in the finished work of your son, Jesus. Pray that you'd knit us together as a church, uh, not in any sort of artificial, faked unity, um, but in a unity that goes down deep all the way to the person of Jesus would be knitted together uh, in our common uh, forgiveness of sins and our common adoption into the family of God. Teach us to live like we're family because we are. Pray that you continue to use and build this church in mighty ways. Your will be done among us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We've had uh, a number of folks in our church or um, sort of around the orbit of our church this week um, and recently having heart heart problems. We've just mentioned a number of names. Uh, Steve Wadsworth, of course, is recovering from heart surgery. Lester Turner, scheduled for a a triple bypass. Uh, Beth Bartlett's dad, um, and even maybe Wayne. We don't know exactly what's going on there. a lot of folks in our congregation with heart problems. And not, of us, not all of us need a bypass surgery, fortunately. But here's a diagnosis that I want us all to understand this morning. We all need heart surgery. Of course, I don't mean physical surgery on the organ that pumps our blood. I mean surgery on our inner person, our inner self. Jesus is going to teach us this morning that what really matters when it comes to being right before God is the heart. The heart. He'll teach us that it's the heart that matters. He's going to teach us that there's a problem in our hearts. The title of this sermon is Not What Goes In, But What Comes Out. Let's read together from Mark 7. Mark 7, and we're going to be starting in verse 14. Mark 7, starting in verse 14. And we'll read through verse 23. Starting in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make a man unclean. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, make us ready to hear a word from you. We don't want to come to your word with our minds made up and our hearts closed off to conviction. We want to be open to whatever it is that you want to say to us. We believe that your word is living and active. You have a wonderful habit of meeting us here in your word and opening up our hearts, piercing us with conviction and healing us with the comfort of Christ. Have your way among us this morning by your word and the power of your spirit. 
We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we read about a confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus, a common theme by now, as recorded in the beginning of Mark chapter 7. If you remember, the situation was like this. Some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, weren't washing their hands before they ate. And, like your mom every night before dinner growing up, the Pharisees were upset about the lack of pre-meal hygiene. The Pharisees had detailed rules about the way that you were supposed to prepare to eat and the way that you were supposed to wash various pots and pans, and Jesus' disciples didn't follow the rules. The Pharisees were upset. Mark 7, verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And I said last week that Jesus was going to address the question in two ways. We looked at the first way last week. First, as we studied in the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7, Jesus addressed how the Pharisees asked their question about handwashing. Before he could get to handwashing itself, Jesus had to make something clear about the nature of the tradition that the Pharisees were appealing to. All of the dozens of handwashing rules that the Pharisees appealed to weren't in Scripture. They were added by the Pharisees on the basis of their tradition. So last week we saw Jesus tear apart the idea that oral tradition could ever be on the same level as Scripture. The Pharisees were leaving the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men, and Jesus would have none of it. That's what we saw in the first 13 verses. But now as we look at verses 14 through 23, the perspective shifts. Now, instead of addressing the Pharisees' traditions broadly, Jesus will address the question of ceremonial cleanliness head-on. Notice, too, that instead of directly addressing the Pharisees, now he's talking to the crowd, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. And here's his thesis statement, verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. How's that for an answer on hand washing? <laughs> Confronted with the Pharisees' demand that the disciples wash their hands before they eat, Jesus proclaimed to the crowd that the whole idea that a person can be spiritually defiled by what they touch or eat misses the point. The Pharisees felt that there was spiritual significance to unwashed hands, that eating with unclean hands could make you spiritually unclean. But Jesus said there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile them. That's our big idea this morning. I've, I've summed it up in this way. A person is not defiled by what they take into their body, but by what comes out of their hearts. 
So Jesus makes this great proclamation. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And then immediately, dropping the mic, he leaves the crowd. He made this bold statement and then retreated to be alone with his disciples, leaving the crowd to kind of chew on that one. So Jesus went into the house where he and his disciples were staying, and in the cool of the house, away from the din of the crowds, the disciples began to think through what Jesus had just said. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. It's interesting that this is called a parable. Typically, we think of a parable as a short, sort of short story, but in this case, the, the parable, or parabolic saying maybe, is just this one sentence. There's nothing outside, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That's the parable, and the disciples ask him about it. Matthew records in his gospel that it was actually Peter who said to Jesus, Explain this parable to us. And if you think about it, they had a right to ask. Everything the disciples had ever been taught about living a life of holiness before God involved ritual purity laws. Of course, they all knew by now that the, that the mountain of the Pharisees' traditions um, wasn't scriptural. Right, But that wasn't the whole story because not all of the ritual purity laws were invented by the Pharisees. Many of these were clearly commanded in the Old Testament law, in Scripture. If you're curious to read some of these laws, check out the book of Leviticus. Chapters 11 through 15 specifically are devoted entirely to the ritual purity of the people of Israel. Israel. Certain animals are clean to eat, but certain animals were unclean. They would defile you by eating them. There's also all kinds of laws in there about leprosy and various bodily discharges and how all these sort of physical ailments and symptoms, things that you could touch and things that you could eat, would make you ritually unclean, would make you defiled. So before we address what Jesus says about these laws, I want to talk about these ritual purity laws in the Old Testament and what their function was before Jesus cuts them off here in this passage. So I want to say this morning there's at least two purposes for these ritual purity laws for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. First of all, uh, there's just some basic sanitary standards that we understand and practice in our day um, about viruses and bacteria and uh, I mean, we wash our hands before we eat and after we use the toilet, but we know about bacteria. And the, the purity laws gave Israel some basic sanitary standards in a day before hand sanitizer, dish soap, and, uh, and showers, right? a day before microscopes. That was a gift from God to the people. But the second reason, again, there's probably more, but I want to talk about two reasons this morning. The second reason for these ritual purity standards was theological. It's theological. The purity standards helped the people of Israel to understand something about their God. The purity standards revealed how holy the presence of their God really was. 
is you read through Leviticus and the, the whole of the sort of first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, over and over, the people of God are shown how holy the presence of God was. You think back, right? God's people are so famously delivered out of Egypt. And as they're wandering in the wilderness, God gives them the gift of the tabernacle, which was later replaced with the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple and the tabernacle were where the, the people of Israel could actually meet with God, where they could experience a special level of his presence. Of course, God's a spirit. We, you know, in some sense, he's, he's everywhere, so he's omnipresent. But as a gift to his people, God God had a special gift of his presence in the tabernacle. And when you read these various purity laws, again, Leviticus 11 through 15, they're very specific that if you were defiled, if you were some, somehow unclean, then you couldn't enter the assembly of the people at the tabernacle. If you were ritually unclean, you couldn't approach the presence of God. And, and this system of ritual purity taught a lesson to Israel that God's presence is holy, that God is holy. Scripture says he dwells in unapproachable light. And we're, we're sinful creatures, right? We're, we're rebels. And to approach him in our sin without having been washed is to put ourselves in grave danger. That's the lesson that Israel was being taught, that God's holiness is white hot and that sinners who enter his presence without protection risk his wrath. Almost the first thing that happens once the Israel's put the tabernacle together for the first time, it's like the next chapter. Two priests, Nadab and Abihu, approached the presence of God in an unworthy manner and they were incinerated. God's presence is holy. And the purity laws hammered that home. They were a parable, an illustration. If you're defiled, unclean, then you cannot enter the presence of God. So, with that in mind, it's a big deal now that Jesus is saying that exterior stuff, even the stuff that was commanded to you through Moses in Scripture, isn't really what matters. Those commands served a purpose for a time to teach God's people about the holiness of the presence of God, but they didn't touch the heart of what it means to be cleansed enough to enter the presence of God. They were a parable, but they weren't the point. Again, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So this is a big deal. This is a big change from the disciples' perspective. Jesus' teaching is, is upending many of their assumptions about what it means to live a faithful life before God. So they've got questions. So being defiled or unclean hasn't been about hand washing and not eating, not eating bacon? <laughs> the disciples had questions, and Jesus was willing to clarify. 
Jesus was willing to clarify. What did Jesus mean by redefining defilement? We, he clarified this in two ways. We're going to see two ways that Jesus clarifies this. First, a person is not defiled by what they take into their stomachs because what you eat is flushed away. Take a look at verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. What is it that Jesus is talking about here that goes in? Jesus is talking about food. This is the food that the disciples were eating with their sticky, unwashed hands. And he's talking too about all the foods that were restricted by the Old Testament law. As we said, those restrictions had a point for a time, but ultimately, according to Jesus, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. And Jesus explains why. Verse 19, since, always look for the becauses in Scripture, because it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. The real defilement, the real uncleanness that keeps us from the presence of God, Jesus says is the defilement of heart and food doesn't pierce the soul of man. Food eaten with unwashed hands does not defile the conscience. It just goes into the stomach, and it doesn't even stay there. It's expelled, my translation says. Some, some translations, like mine, clean up Jesus' language here. Expelled. The King James translates it, goeth out into the draft. Draft is an old English word for drain. The NLT says goes into the sewer. Jesus is talking about the toilet. That's the Greek word. The point, food doesn't stick around. Doesn't change who you are in your heart. You eat it one day and it leaves the next. Food doesn't make a person spiritually unclean. And in case we missed it, Mark explains the significance of this statement, verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. All the restrictions on clean and unclean foods, which God had given through Moses, Jesus abrogated. Jesus says, no more. What really matters is the heart. I want us to understand the significance of this change. And the weight that Jesus was giving to his own words. Mark is pretty matter-of-fact about it. Thus he declared all foods clean. But this is a weighty change. Jesus wasn't just throwing out tradition here like he was last week. He was making changes to the Mosaic law, God's law, as God himself had spoken to God's people. Jesus wasn't just reinterpreting God's word. He was changing it. Jesus wasn't speaking with the authority of a man, with the authority of a, a rabbi or another religious teacher. Here he's speaking with the authority of God himself. In declaring all foods clean, Jesus was doing something which only God can do. As we've seen by now, he was in the habit of doing. By his words and his actions, Jesus made the mystery of the incarnation clear. Even if some people couldn't see it. 
Before them was standing God in the flesh, truly God, truly man. The holy God who spoke the law to Moses on the mountain was now sitting with the disciples explaining his heart. I said that Jesus explained his statement to his disciples in two ways. First, as we've seen, Jesus made clear that a person is not defiled by what they take into their stomachs because what you eat is flushed away. Secondly, Jesus clarifies that a person is defiled by what comes out of their hearts because moral evil flows from the human heart. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Not what goes in, but what comes out. What defiles us before God isn't something we can pick up when we're about town. It isn't something we contract through the air. It isn't like food poisoning at a bad potluck or salmonella or the coronavirus. What makes us unclean before God is what comes out of us. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. The kind of uncleanness which makes us defiled in the presence of God is, is our sinful, distorted hearts. Where do evil thoughts come from? There's no tinfoil hat that we can wear to keep sinful thoughts from coming into our brain. And even if there was, it wouldn't block the source because sinful thoughts spring from our own rebellious hearts. By heart, we mean, as I said, the inner person. In our modern understanding, we often think about the heart as the seat of the emotions. But in a more ancient understanding, the, the word heart here, cardia in Greek, meant literally heart, the organ that pumped blood, but it encompassed the, the, the idea of your whole inner person. Emotions, thoughts, will, all wrapped up into one. The idea was that the, the heart was the control center. Without the heart beating, you had nothing. So the, the idea was that the, the, the heart encompassed this whole idea of the inner person. And the heart, as the inner cockpit of our lives, is the source, Jesus says, of all kinds of evil thoughts. And it's by the corruption of our hearts, our inner person, that we're made unclean. Pause here. Do you believe this? I know we believe this about other people. We can all name people that we think have crooked hearts. We're not going to worry about them right now. Dwelling on other people's sin rarely leads us into righteousness. Usually it just leads us into our own pride. So we're not going to do that this morning. I want us to pause and ask ourselves, do we believe that our own hearts are sinful and deceitful? That out of our hearts flow evil thoughts, not my words here. This is Jesus' words. He says, out of my heart, out of your heart, flow evil thoughts. The crookedness of the human heart is, is a universal teaching in Scripture. 
through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, and who can understand it? After stating generally that from the heart come evil thoughts, Jesus lists a few kinds of evil which flow from the heart, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I want to notice a couple things about this list. First, these aren't all thoughts. Sinful stuff starts in the heart, but it comes out in our actions. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, those all start in the heart, but you need your hands to do them. They come out to the hands. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles us. You also might notice here some similarities between this list and what's called the, the second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments. This is, this is really interesting. Um, because Jesus' earlier statement about the purity laws and then this list of commands in one passage Go with me here. I'm going to explain this in a minute. In one passage, Jesus modifies the temporary ceremonial law of Israel and reiterates the eternal moral law which was given to God's people in the Ten Commandments. So let me explain. There's a distinction as we read the Old Testament. And Jesus is showing us how to read the Old Testament well here. There's a distinction between the civil and ceremonial law on one hand and the moral law on the other. There's a bunch of commandments in the Old Testament, we all know this, that we don't follow as Christians, right? That's the civil and the ceremonial law. It no longer binds us in the New Testament. They weren't eternal principles. They were specific expectations for God's people in a specific setting and time, a specific covenant, a specific dispensation. All the laws about uh, what foods to eat and what priests were supposed to wear and the dimensions of the tabernacle. They're, they're helpful, they're interesting, um, and they can actually edify us in some ways, but they don't bind us as Christians. That's the civil and the ceremonial law. Civil, we're talking about like politics, right? The laws of a nation. And ceremonial, meaning the religious laws, the, the temple, the tabernacle, that sort of thing. Civil and ceremonial. We don't live in the theocratic nation of Israel, and we don't live with a, a temple, a sacrificial system. Um, we're in a new covenant. These things aren't binding to us. But the moral law of God never changes. Murder was wrong yesterday, and it will be wrong tomorrow, and God will never change his mind about it. Because God's fundamental character doesn't change. God has always forbidden murder because God has always treasured human life. That won't change. Thou shalt not kill is a matter of God's moral law, and we should still seek to obey that command today. The civil and the ceremonial law applied only to Old Testament Israel, but the moral law offers guidance to, to men in all days. So if you're scratching your head on this one, don't sweat it. It's not the main point of this passage or this message. If you have questions about it, ask me afterwards or call me this week. Um, but if you're following 
what I'm saying so far. It's, it is really interesting to see how Jesus handles the Old Testament in this passage because he, the way he talks about the law, he actually, you can see he's using this distinction. Um, he acknowledges this distinction here. He's, he's saying on the one hand that these ceremonial laws about hand washing and, and foods to eat, kaput. They don't endure into the new covenant. But he affirms, on the other hand, that God's moral law will endure. That thou shalt not kill, that thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal or bear false witness or covet. Those things still apply. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Well, he really did tell those Pharisees, didn't he? We could come at this teaching from one direction and, and let it run right off us if we wanted to because we're not Pharisees. We don't believe that eating certain foods or hand-washing have spiritual significance. We're, we're past that. If we wanted to, we could, we could kind of pat ourselves on the back knowing that we're with Jesus on this one. We know hand-washing isn't a thing anymore and just go home. But if we did that, we'd be missing out on something really important. Jesus clarified in this teaching that hand washing and dietary restrictions aren't what make us unclean before God, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. Some people read Jesus in the Gospels and think he's lowering the standard by removing all these Old Testament restrictions. Don't be fooled. Jesus just raised the standard. You can kill 99.99% of bacteria on your hands with Purell, but it's a much harder thing to purify the human heart. According to Jesus, we have a problem, and the problem is our hearts. This is a problem. What are we supposed to do? What cleansing agent in the whole world could purify a sinful heart. I want us to read together from the prophet Ezekiel. Prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. The context of this prophecy is that God's people, over and over and over again, after entering the promised land, rebelled against their God. They went after idols. They served false gods. Their hearts were polluted with sin and idolatry. If you can learn anything from the Old Testament, it's that God's people had hearts that were far from him over and over in every generation. God explained the problem to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 16. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it. Talking about defilement, uncleanness. Listen to that language there. They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. God's people had hearts and deeds which were unclean, polluted with sin, just like ours, apart from Christ. Verse 18, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land. 
for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. This is the exile. The result of the uncleanness of the people of God was God's judgment on the people of God. God cannot abide sin in his presence. The lesson of the purity laws carried through to its final conclusion. He cannot tolerate the pollution of sin, so he sent his people away from him, out of the promised land. Polluted hearts are cast out of the presence of God. This is, this is a problem, and this is our problem. Unless you're incredibly naive to the reality of your own sin, you know that out of your heart come evil thoughts. Your heart is our hearts are wired to rebel against God, to be unloving to our neighbor. What's the solution? Ezekiel 36, verse 24. This is the promise of God to his people when they were in exile. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. The promise of God was that a day was coming where he would take the polluted hearts of his people and cleanse them himself that he would roll up his sleeves and get out the soap and clean out their filthy hearts from all their sin and idolatry. God here uses the image of stone and flesh. On our own, our hearts are stone spiritually. Apart from God, our hearts are hard toward him. But the promise of God was that one day he would do heart surgery on his people, that he would roll up his sleeves and ask for a scalpel and with care and precision remove their granite hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh that were soft towards him. In verse 27, God explained how this heart-replacing operation would take place by his spirit. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The heart which has been filled with the spirit of God no longer overflows with all kinds of evil. Instead, God promised his people that when he filled them with his spirit, they would learn to walk according to his good commands and righteous character. Imagine if God would do that. Imagine 
What would happen if all the hard hearts of all of humanity could be replaced? He did do it, and he is doing it. These promises were fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. At the birth of the Christian church, the Holy Spirit of God came down in power upon the first generation of Christians. But God's powerful regime of heart change didn't stop there, and it hasn't stopped since. These promises made through Ezekiel are also fulfilled every time the Holy Spirit of God invades a sinner's life and brings them to Christ. If you're a Christian, this passage in Ezekiel should give you the shivers because the idol-cleansing, heart-transplanting, spirit-filling transformation, which was prophesied these thousands of years ago, is exactly what God has done and is doing in your heart and your life. In pointing to the heart as the real problem, Jesus was setting his disciples up to refocus on the real spiritual problem which had plagued mankind since Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus wanted his disciples to see their need for an absolute renovation of the heart because that was exactly what he was preparing to give them. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is at work in you. The heart surgery, which was promised through Ezekiel, has taken hold in you. Think back. The Spirit drew you to Christ when you first believed. Your, your dead, sinful heart was hooked up to the defibrillating power of the Spirit and brought to life. Your guilty, defiled heart was sprinkled with the cleansing blood of Christ and your sins were forgiven, full justification. And now as you continue to walk as a Christian, you are learning day by day how to walk in the Spirit, no longer walking in the lusts of the sinful flesh. I want to give two encouragements to Christians this morning and one encouragement to anyone here who may not know Christ. First, to Christians. Don't forget to rest and don't forget to strive. Don't forget to rest and don't forget to strive. First, don't forget to rest. All of this about the sinfulness of our hearts can get us down if we dwell only on the condition of our hearts and our own sin. But we mustn't forget that as sinful as our hearts are, the grace of God is better. If you are in Christ, God does not hold your sin against you any longer. Christ's death and resurrection are enough to justify you perfectly before the Father. He has cast your sins as far from you as the east is from the west, and you can live like it. Christ bore the punishment for our sin, and we bear it no more. It is finished. From God's perspective, according to his eternal legal decree, if you are a Christian, you are righteous before God in his sight. There is nothing you could ever do to be more in with God. If you are a Christian, you're in the family, and there's nothing you can do about it. Some of you brothers and sisters have very sensitive consciences 
and I love you for it. You're very aware of even your smallest sinful thoughts and actions. Your tendency isn't towards minimizing sin. It's towards doubting that God could ever forgive you. You're so aware of your sin that you wonder if God could ever really love you. Friends, what Christ accomplished is enough. Your justification in him is complete. Even though you still, we all still, struggle against the sinful tendencies of our heart, our eternal legal status before God on the basis of Christ's work alone is secure. You are a forgiven, cleansed, justified, adopted child of God. And don't forget to rest in that. Rest in that. How much work do you do when you lay down on the bed? Nothing. Rest in Christ. Don't forget to rest. Don't forget to rest. But also don't forget to strive. Some of us this morning don't have the sensitive conscience problem. We have the calloused conscience problem. Some of you this morning, if I asked you what, your, what sinful tendencies in your heart that you've been struggling against this week, you couldn't tell me. Not because you're sinless, but because you haven't been struggling against your sin. My encouragement to those of us this morning who might fit into that category is that we wouldn't grow complacent with any evil that's in our hearts. Don't forget to strive with sin. A radical heart change happens when we become Christians, but the rest of the Christian life is a slower, usually more gradual heart renovation. How's your heart doing? The Spirit's always at work in us, scrubbing out our hearts. Are you resisting his work? Are you ignoring it? What patterns of sin in your life are you casually tolerating? What attitudes tucked back in the closets and attics of your inner life still need to be rooted out? Are we being attentive to the state of our hearts? Are we striving to grow in godliness? Or are we complacent? Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts are not to be trusted. Follow your heart is foolishness. Our hearts don't tend towards righteousness automatically. They're broken compasses. And we'll need to spend our whole lives intentionally course-correcting. Instead of blindly following our hearts, we need to be intentionally tending our hearts like a garden. In the hands of an expert gardener, a garden can be a wonderful, fruitful thing. But left to its own devices, a garden will become overgrown. Weeds will grow and choke out the fruit. Pests will get in through the holes in the fence and eat anything good. The gardens of our hearts, without tending, get overgrown with sin. And over time, we start to tolerate a little weed here, a little gossip here, a little anger here, a little hatred there, a little envy here. 
little self-centered pride here. But God's a good gardener. What part of your heart needs some tending? Go to him. Ask him to reveal your blind spots. Pray for the ability to see those weeds that you've been carelessly neglecting. Pray, too, for the ability to do something about it. God is in the business of heart renovation. He's got some industrial strength pesticides on his hands. God's will for you and for me is that we would be holy as he is holy. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says this. This is God's will for us as Christians. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, you're in the family. You're not doing this to get into the family. You're doing this as one who's in the family. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. Are we sober-minded for the battle? Do we take the threat seriously? Are our minds prepared for action? Are we doing what we can to arm ourselves for the sometimes messy business of the renovation of our hearts? So don't forget to strive but don't forget to rest. Then don't forget to strive. And then don't forget to rest. This is the sort of wonderful, fruitful tension of the Christian life. Always reminding ourselves to rest in the gospel and Christ's finished, completed work, and yet at the same time, not forgetting to strive against sin and to do the hard work of weeding. So we come to a close. I have a final word to say to those here who might not be Christians. We, all of us as human beings, have a sense that we don't measure up. We all have a sense that our hearts are sinful and defiled before God. Maybe you're in denial about it. We've all been there. A lot of people are. Here's what I want you to remember. When you're ready for some real solutions for your very real heart problems, remember that God has made a solution available through Christ. Your heart can be cleansed from all the guilt of sin. Your heart can be cleansed in Christ. God is in the business of spiritual heart surgery. Go to him. Don't, don't go half-heartedly. Jesus isn't an accessory to wear or a hobby to have. And don't just go for fire insurance. But when the day comes when you're truly cut to the heart because of your sin, when the Spirit gives you clear eyes to see the depth of your own uncleanness, run to Him. A broken and contrite heart He will not despise. And if that's you today, go to Him. Cry out to Him. Plead for Him to do His work of renovation in your own heart. If you don't know how to do that, or if you have questions about what that means, talk to me after the service, give me a call this week, or if you'd be more comfortable, talk to someone else in this room who's a Christian, 
There's many people here who would, would love to have that conversation. In a moment here, we're going to close with, um, I think, a fitting hymn, Change My Heart, O God. Before we do that, let's, uh, let's go to prayer. Father, we need heart surgery. We're more aware now than when we began that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to lead us into all kinds of spiritual defilement. Please, Father, cleanse us of our sin. By Jesus' blood, wash away the guilt of our sin, and by the power of your consuming spirit, lead us into all righteousness. Soften up our hearts. Renew our hearts and our minds. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Number 654, Change My Heart, O God. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. You are the Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. Amen. As you go from here, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.